Gospel of John. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John's conclusion to his gospel, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Now, despite this tremendous amount of work and miracle that Jesus performed in his lifetime, St. Paul would say to the Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Father, as we enter into an extended season, laboring to understand salvation, exploring the nature of sin, learning to war against Satan and his tactics, may the cross become preeminent to each one of us. May it personally transform us. May we see you bring renewal and revival in the hearts of your people and all across our city, as we make the cross central to our lives. We entrust these prayers to you. We trust you, Spirit, to be our director, our guide, our counselor, and the one who brings fullness of heart into our homes and into our lives. We worship you in every way this morning, in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, amen. And let's grab our seats. My life trajectory forever changed in a garage in Hazleton, Idaho, January 1st, 1998, as I found myself on my knees alongside a handlebar-mustached Idaho cowboy, a guy named Mark Ottman, and then his fiery, red-haired little wife, Roxy Ottman, next to him, and next to her, my friend and their nephew, Jason Graybill. I was praying the sinner's prayer. I was, at that point, an utterly broken human. I had been on a wild trajectory since age 11 or 12 of rebellion, and it had culminated in a pretty long run with some pretty heavy hallucinogens that wrecked my mind, landed me in a psych ward with drug-induced psychosis. My drinking at that point had become a genuine problem of which I had no control. I'd failed a suicide attempt only a couple months before. And there I was praying to Jesus for the very first time in my entire life. Now, I wish that I could tell you guys, it's 20 plus years later, that January 1st, 1998 was such a radical conversion that I was immediately delivered from all of my issues. I certainly was not. I didn't let the drugs go. I certainly didn't let the drinking go after my conversion. I kept at them only now as one filled with the Holy Spirit, experiencing disorienting conviction and deep guilt and longing for freedom. And I'll tell you, in those early days of my Christianity, I was a weirdo. The more intoxicated I got at the party, the more I'd be bawling my eyes out and preaching, telling everyone at the party, I'm forgiven by Jesus. You're forgiven by Jesus. He loves me. He loves you. And we should all stop what we're doing right now and follow him. Belch, pass out. (laughs) 
There were many Sundays in that first year spent sitting in the back of the church, completely inebriated, just bawling my eyes out. And in the haze of those early months, I have this very vivid memory that stands out. I had awakened in my bed from about a two or three day binge, which was my pattern at that point. And there were these voices screaming in my head over and over and over. You have failed. You will never be free. You're worthless. Christians despise you. They hate you. They know what you actually are. You're not a Christian. No one loves you. God doesn't love you. You're disgusting. You're repulsive. Over and over, like a machine gun of thoughts being fired into my brain. Now, my body in those days especially, even though I was still in my early 20s, was always racked with physical pain. It was like this internal burn that was a mixture of like horrific anxiety and then drug-induced paranoia and hangover. And I remember that morning being particularly painful. I tossed and I turned and the voices were raging until ever so slowly, I felt my body stretching out in my bed in the form of a cross. This movement wasn't really a conscious action on my part. The Holy Spirit just moved me in my bed, crossing my feet and my arms outstretched in the position of a cross. And there, as my body lay in the form of a cross, it's, it's hard to describe. That first year of Christianity, there were so many weird things that happened that are hard to describe. I was so overwhelmed with a sense of peace that literally surpasses understanding. The voices went completely silent. Everything became soft and still in my room and in my body. And as I lay there in the form of the cross, again, I was experiencing this freedom and this complete forgiveness. And I was safe and I was at peace. And I remember weeping until sleep took me. So I open our new year as a church and our time together with that story because it is in microcosm what God is doing in you and in I today, right now in this moment, and ultimately in the entire cosmos. Rebellion, addiction, anxiety, exhaustion, pain, sin, Satan, all of these things have wrecked God's world. The universe, including you and I, we are under attack, and the world is groaning and aching under a burden of slavery that it cannot free itself from. And at the epicenter of all the cosmos and chaos, history and humanity, is a Jewish peasant from a backwater nowhere, hanging naked, bruised, and bloodied on a cross. And the claim of the early church was that the historical death of Jesus under Pontius Pilate followed by his literal and physical resurrection from the dead, changed everything, everywhere, for all of time. And so here at the onset of 2022, we are now going to return to where we left off in the Gospel of John some months ago. The final chapters of John's theological and historical record of Jesus dial in on the account of his betrayal, his crucifixion, and his ultimate resurrection from the dead. And so for the next 15 weeks plus... For the next four months plus, as a church, we're going to enter into an extended meditation on the themes, topics, and realities that the crucifixion of the Son of God present. And we're going to humbly attempt to try to answer, at least in some measure, try to answer some key questions. 
What did the crucifixion of Jesus actually accomplish? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die such a gruesome death? What is sin? Who or what is Satan? What is evil? Why does evil exist? What is repentance? What is forgiveness, mercy, grace? What is salvation? How does the cross change the way I go to work or school tomorrow morning and the entire trajectory of the cosmos? And so in the world of theology, we're going to be deep diving into what traditionally has been called atonement theory. Can you guys all say that? Atonement theory. Now, I know some of you nerds, you're on the edge of your seat right now, and you're like, yes, here comes the big words and these lofty theological ideas, and yes, you are going to get some big words and some lofty theological ideas over the next four months, but we want this to, it must be more than just an intellectual exercise. As we study the manifold aspects of the crucifixion of Jesus, we're asking the Holy Spirit to make these studies dynamic, living truth that empower us for radical Christian living in the days in which we find ourselves. And for those who feel intimidated by big words and theological ideas, two things for you. Number one, you are way smarter and way more capable than you give yourself credit for. Listen, learn the definitions, pay attention, and you will be shocked how clear and practical and powerful some of these somewhat abstract ideas are to your real-life experience. And number two, this isn't going to be all abstract theory from a classroom. To study the cross truly, it must carry over into our daily lives. We're going to make these teachings concrete and applicable to Monday morning as much as they are to our minds. Now, we've chosen three simple practices to embody the truths that we're going to be learning here on Sunday mornings. We're going to emphasize these practices every single week. Silence, scripture reading, and fasting. That's the only three we're focusing on for the next four months. Silence, because many of the biblical passages that mention silence are actually in reference to judgment on the sins of God's people. And so as we study our own sin, we're going to practice silence as an embodied act of humility and surrender to who we are, but also to how God loves us. Scripture reading as a means of fighting the lies of the flesh and the world and the devil. And as we enter the season of Lent in March, we'll begin to emphasize fasting, a weekly fast for our entire community. Okay, now before we move on, it's important that we get this. I want to give you like a big picture kind of vision DNA thing for us as a community. One of the reasons that I felt so compelled towards this lengthy study on the cross is because of where we are right now as a newly forming community of Jesus this year. If you've been here for very long, you've heard us say that we are a contemplative, charismatic people. <laughs> contemplative and charismatic are shorthand for streams of Christianity that had particular emphases that we believe need renewal in the modern church. The contemplatives are rooted in the ancient monastic movements, and they restore to the modern church forms of deep meditative prayer and meditative reading, Lectio Divina journals, get one. Practices like silence, solitude, fasting, weekly Sabbath. Now, the charismatics, they're rooted in various movements of church history going all the way back to the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit manifested with unique power and visibility, ushering in seasons of intensive prayer and healing, miracles, radical boldness, and great sweeping times of repentance and revival. The contemplative attunes his or her awareness to the present moment and practices a passive acceptance of the beauty, 
the hardship, and the presence of God in quiet prayer. The charismatic cries out to God in active, intensive prayer for supernatural power, an increase of beauty, and the end of suffering. And so, as contemplatives, we're passively silent. We're learning to be still as we receive what is in the moment. And as charismatics, we're actively crying out by faith with everything we've got for the Holy Spirit to move us from our places of stillness into animated action on behalf of the kingdom in the world. We're contemplative charismatics. We're charismatic contemplatives, however you want to say it. Does everybody understand that piece, that kind of hybrid piece? Everybody got that? Okay, here's, here's the thing. I have discerned in my own heart, and I think there is a key piece missing for us to be wholehearted and fully mature Christians. The contemplatives and the charismatics have always had a tendency to lose their way doctrinally, that is, within the framework of their teachings. If you watch the trajectories of the contemplative and the charismatic movements, over time, slowly the practices or the events and the experiences or the miracles or the inner voice from the meditations ever so subtly and sometimes not so subtly begin to supersede scriptural authority and guidance and scriptural standard. Old Testament Jürgen Moltmann wrote in The Crucified God, the inner criterion of whether or not Christian theology is Christian lies in the crucified Christ. What Maltman understood was that the scriptures bear ultimate authority in the people of God and that true Christian belief and behavior, what we call orthodoxy and orthopraxy, has at its center of gravity the cross of Jesus. And so we must and we will guard against a doctrinal drift from orthodoxy. And this drift from orthodoxy is a problem and a challenge for every generation and every tributary of Jesus' church. And so we must become what we call a confessional people, a confessional people. Now, when I say confessional, Yes, it involves confessing our sin and saying that we've done wrong, but don't think of it primarily in those terms in this context. We, the church, stand on the shoulders of a 2,000-year-old tradition of Jesus' communities coming together, hammering out doctrines, theological positions, and creeds through various councils and times of debate that we, the modern church, collectively confess with the church throughout history confessing these doctrines we declare to be true, and orthodox. Things like the Trinity, the nature of Jesus' deity and humanity, the nature of scriptural authority, these are included in these confessions. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Creeds of Chalcedon, and many others are the long-standing confessions of the church that detail what we collectively declare to be orthodox or right teaching. And so the cross and the nature of sin and the means of salvation, these are all central to orthodoxy. And so from and through the cross, we will learn to confess certain beliefs and realities that are unalterably, non-negotiably true. We are to be a contemplative, charismatic, confessional people. It's like a three-legged stool. And we're going to need all three legs for the rest of the life of our church to be a fully formed, mature Christian community. Charismatic, come Holy Spirit. Contemplative, you're already here. I'm observing it within the contours of my life. Confessional, 
God, through the scriptures, has revealed to us how the Spirit is present and can manifest. Does that all make sense to us? Big DNA piece for us, hopefully for the rest of the life of our church. Generations to come, hopefully those guys will stick to it as well after we're gone and not liberalize. With that, four big ideas to take us to communion this morning. Four big ideas from the cross that we're going to be exploring in detail in the coming months. Number one, I already alluded to this. The crucifixion of Jesus is the most important event in all of history ever. Now, I know some of you are saying, what about the resurrection? And it's helpful to note that when I say the crucifixion, that is shorthand for the crucifixion and the resurrection, the event that culminated in this moment. But we're going to focus primarily on the cross for the first four months. Post-Easter, we'll talk about resurrection, okay? The earliest followers of Jesus interpreted the events of the crucifixion at a cosmic and a universal scale. Paul said to the Colossians that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, him being Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What Paul was saying was something shifted in all of creation at the crucifixion of Jesus. This was more than just a mere Jewish revolutionary getting himself in, the tr- in trouble with the Roman authorities. God was making peace, bringing shalom across all things, including heaven, the metaphysical realm, and earth, the physical realm, by Jesus' blood. I don't even know what that means. I just know it's huge. And now, in this moment that we find ourselves in, despite the grand scope and impact of the cross, culturally, It's just a mere relic sitting atop empty church buildings, or it's an occasional gold pendant hanging about someone's neck. In our secular age, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Moderns consider the teachings of the cross downright silly, if not horrifically offensive and downright repulsive. That God would allow or even ordain the death of his innocent son on behalf of the guilty is nonsensical to so many. Notions of blood and guilt, sacrifice and substitution, choices and our personal responsibility in those choices. For many moderns, well, those are all just religious artifacts of an era long since buried by technological development, the rise of science, and the self-help industrial complex. And so our society believes that we've moved on from such offensive and archaic notions. As Tim Keller has so well said, today's culture believes the thing we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. Tragically, and this is in part a personal confession on my part as a leader of the church for over 20 years now, and another reason for this extended meditation at the foot of the cross. Tragically, the cross sits in the periphery of the life of the church. Our tendency is to sanitize the cross and keep it as a gold pendant about the neck of a lovely lady. It is to diminish its importance. We tend to unintentionally and sometimes intentionally ignore, suppress, or soften the moral and the emotional difficulties that the cross of Jesus Christ brings right to the fore. Or, in the case of more conservative churches like ours, we reduce the cross to something, that, to something less than what it actually accomplished. 
I like to say that the cross is kaleidoscopic. Do you guys remember kaleidoscopes? You could look through them and you turn them and with every little subtle turn, new patterns would explode through the lens through which you were looking. The cross is kaleidoscopic. As you slowly look around it, turning it, even the smallest degree, new patterns and images of beauty and complexity fill your perspective and heal your soul. Biola Professor Adam Johnson in his little book on wisdom and the atonement. By the way, if you want the reading list I've been working through, I'd love to give it to you. He writes this, what was Christ's purpose in his death and resurrection? Can we limit it to just one? He came to seek the lost, heal the wounded, feed the hungry, fulfill the law and the prophets, triumph over Satan, complete the role of the temple, cleanse the defiled, satisfy the honor of God while bringing honor to the shamed, adopt us, bring to completion the work of Adam, restore creation to its Edenic state, pay our ransom, descend into hell, be the propitiation, expiation for our sin, fulfill the sacrificial system once and for all, reconcile Jew and Gentile, share with us his Holy Spirit, bring to an end the groaning of creation, be our bride price, bear in himself the covenant curses and promises, suffer the exile of Israel. And is this list complete, Johnson asks? Far from it. Far from it. And so, as the cross stands at the epicenter of all things, we need to look at it over and over, turning it in different directions and different angles of life to take in all of its vast richness. And though we may try to self-help and science our way into salvation, we cannot, nor will we ever escape the pain of this broken world and ultimately death. The message of the cross, friends, reduces our modern notions of self-sufficiency and progress to just piles of rubble. And the cross offers a vision of God's purpose for the whole human race, believers and unbelievers alike, so comprehensive and so staggering that it silences all who come to grips with its power, its ugliness, and its beauty. And so the cross is foolish to the perishing, but it is wisdom for Jesus' followers. This is Paul's follow-up to that line in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God for those who are being saved. And we're going to take months to unpack what do we actually need saving from? Why do we need saving? And then we want to develop a deep understanding on how the power of God saves us through the crucifixion of Jesus. Number two, the cross is the central event of the true story. We are all telling and being told stories about the nature of reality. Some of our stories go like this. Once there was nothing, then bang, there was something, then lots of chemicals accidentally mutated into place until you got us, and one day there will be nothing again. Now that's a story, just like any other story. It has legitimate validity in certain arenas through certain perspectives and certain interpretations, but it is a story. And there are as many stories about reality as there are humans. And so the story of Jesus claims to be the true story of reality. And his crucifixion sits as the central event of that story. And this story, friends, isn't just found in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The story is interwoven throughout the entire library of scriptures, Genesis all the way to Revelation. Our friends at the Bible Project, Tim Mackey and the crew, they have this tagline, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. You know what that means? That means that 2 Chronicles 
and the prophet Nahum and Obadiah and the weird stuff in the book of Leviticus, they are all part of the story of Jesus. And all of those weird places in the Old Testament, they inform our story that we're telling ourselves about reality. So for the next four months, we are going to be doing a ton of reading of a ton of scriptures in Genesis all the way to Revelation. Fleming Rutledge, who is heavily influencing these teachings in her magnum opus, The Crucifixion of the Son of God, she suggests that we not deal in categories of atonement theory when studying the cross, but in story. Rutledge writes, Indeed, theory is a poor word to choose when seeking to understand the testimony of the Bible. The Old and New Testaments do not present theories at any time. Instead, we find stories, images, metaphors, symbols, sagas, sermons, songs, letters, and poems. It would be hard to find writing that is less theoretical. I agree with her. And so while technically over the next four months we're going to be studying atonement theory, we're going to be doing so in the context of the grand story arc of the Bible. We'll be traveling through Old Testament and New Testament narratives, images, metaphors, symbols, sagas, sermons, songs, poems letting them inform our modern story of reality with the cross as our center of gravity. Number three, the cross has achieved true victory over evil. Maybe this is a word of hope for one of you today. M. Scott Peck, great psychologist of the 80s, turned that world upside down in his book, People of the Lie. He argued that the central defect of evil wasn't necessarily the outward behaviors of evil or the aberrant events of human history. The central defect of evil was the refusal to acknowledge the existence of evil and define it as such. In similar fashion, the brilliant C.S. Lewis in his satirical masterpiece, The Screwtape Letters, he wrote from the perspective of a head demon. The book is actually hilarious. He writes from the perspective of a head demon to his assistant demon, Screwtape, as he's training him in ways of deceiving humans. And in one section, the senior demon instructs Screwtape, the assistant demon, saying this, I don't think you'll have much difficulty in keeping your patient in the dark. Patient, that's us, the church. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. The true story that we live in through the scriptures definitively describes a host of evil and malevolent opponents to God and to his people. And so from page one all the way to the final cosmic victory in the book of Revelation, there is this ongoing war with evil and this evil is both spiritual, metaphysical, outside of what we see, touch, taste, feel, sense, and it is also manifest in the hearts of humans. As we'll learn next week, at the fall, we gave ourselves willingly over to these spiritual forces of evil. Peck, again, is forceful in People of the Lies. He argues this. There are only two states of being, submission to God and goodness, or the refusal to submit to anything beyond one's own will, which refusal automatically enslaves one to the forces of evil, we must ultimately belong either to God or to the devil. And so as we explore the cross in these coming months, we will necessarily explore sin and Satan and evil. 
And as we get into it, we'll discover that the cross does not make sense of evil. That age-old philosophical question, why is there evil in the world? As we're going to learn theologically, and I think even philosophically, evil is inexplicable. There are no good or rational reasons why evil of any magnitude exists. But what we can be certain of in the coming months, as we will see, is that through the cross, evil has been defeated forever. Number four, and finally, the cross is the beginning and foundation of true healing and human flourishing. It goes without saying that there is a lot of brokenness in our personal and social lives. And the cross is the true source of healing. As the church, more than ever, it is heavy on my heart that we return to the cross, that we know the cross, and that we apply the cross so that we would truly flourish as God's people in this world. Let me give you a curious example, an interesting example from the New Testament on the preeminence of the cross as the point of human flourishing. Paul was dealing with a rowdy, rowdy church in the city of Corinth. The Corinthian church was somewhat of a, like a frat party gone awry. It was just, one guy was sexually involved with his stepmother or possibly even his mother. The language is like really uncomfortably ambiguous. They were getting hammered at communion, you know, just kind of tipping back on the communion cups a little bit much. There were power plays and envy and factions. The poor and the unseen were being trampled on while those in power were taking more and more. Now, Paul doesn't give us explicit insight into their personal emotional experiences, but we can safely assume that many within the community of Corinth were wrestling with issues of depression and anxiety and loneliness. And so Paul comes to this rowdy frat party of a church gone awry where there's inequality and envy and injustice, and he doesn't offer the church sociological strategies. He doesn't offer the church economic theories. He doesn't even put forward psychological therapies as their primary hope. Paul doesn't come to them relying on his charisma or leadership tactics to bring the church to health. Paul determined one thing was most important for the Corinthians to get better, and to flourish. He writes, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was persuaded that the Corinthians' true hope for flourishing personally and corporately as a church and even for the city of Corinth was that they would know and understand why Jesus had died, that he had died, and that he was indeed alive on their behalf. Now, family, I want you to understand something. I am a huge promoter and fan of clinical therapy done by Christians. I have a therapist myself. I think it's tremendously helpful. But if the cross is not preeminent in how we as Christians understand the contours of our broken souls and our truest needs, therapy becomes nothing more than a deep exploration of our memories and our emotions with no actual means of true forgiveness, true washing, true purifying, and whole healing. The cross, friends, exposes the fault lines in our soul and deeply humbles us because it reveals the gravity of our need. And so the guilt and the fear and the shame and the anxiety and the loneliness that drives us to therapy has its ultimate healing at the foot of the cross 
where we are forgiven and enabled to forgive. And it's only at the cross where we experience the true worth of our souls as we are accepted by God's grace and mercy, adopted as his children unto our perfect father. And it's not just personal, this healing and flourishing through the cross. The cross is the source of social, ethnic, political, economic, universal, and cosmic healing and flourishing. Ultimately, the cross is even the healing of this plague, friends. What do we think the resurrection is about? The impulses of our cultural moment towards racial reconciliation, economic equality, and social justice, these are all to be celebrated. They are powerful. They are important. They are beautiful. Yet, without the cross actually bringing people together and equalizing us all as sinners before a holy God and the cross accomplishing true and cosmic justice, all attempts at humanly accomplishing the things that we long for as a society are in vain. This is why the church must keep the cross as its centerpiece. Paul was determined. We are determined here in the city of San Diego for the next four or five months to preach the cross because he and we know that it is the beginning, the source, and the ultimate place of healing for, for everything, for everything. As we wrap up, that is what I experienced 20 plus years ago. I didn't know what was happening as my body stretched out in the form of a cross. I didn't understand that in that moment, I was like physically embodying the most important and greatest event in all of history. And the spirit, he was like physically placing me in the truest story. And I was manifesting in that moment on my bed, the victory over evil that the cross has granted to the cosmos. And I want to encourage you as we launch into 2022 and we try to become a self-sustaining church and, and we seek to make disciples and we become a contemplative, charismatic, confessional people, the cross right now today continues to heal my soul and your soul. It is the cross. It is the cross that will heal our families it is the cross that will keep our church together. It is the cross that will heal this city and this nation. And ultimately, it is the cross that will bring redemption and reconciliation to the entire cosmos. Communion this morning and for the coming weeks should be deep and rich and applicable and real. Father, only you, Holy Spirit, can apply the cross to our lives in a day of digital distraction and the self-help industrial complex and the rise of science. We pray to be a humble people disregarding the arrogant thoughts that we can sustain ourselves or save ourselves without you. The cross reveals the depth of our need that we indeed had given and have given ourselves over to malevolence to wicked and vile and destructive things, these forces of evil. Father, let us no longer be deceived as a people of God, but may we be awakened and renewed. May the cross take up center place and become the center of our gravity. May it be the sun around which we orbit. And today, even today, may you grant a level of healing and flourishing 
as even the declarations of the importance of the cross saturate our souls. Guide us in these coming months. Awaken us and quicken us. May we learn deeply. May we celebrate with our community. May we preach in our city the glories of God and the wisdom of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. We trust you now and we worship you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.